Thank you for downloading or streaming this message from Emmanuel Church. We are one church with multiple locations, and we believe God wants to bless you right where you are. In a few moments, you're going to hear some practical teaching from God's Word that I believe will be inspiring and relevant to your life. First, though, if you haven't yet experienced Emmanuel Live, we encourage you to go to our website, eclife.org, to check out our service times and locations so that you can experience Emmanuel in person or through our online campus. If this message blesses you and you'd like to support the ministry financially, again, you can go to eclife.org and click on the Giving tab and choose Online Campus at your campus. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope this message will be an encouragement to you on your spiritual journey. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Church. It's so exciting to be here. I love the fact that every summer I can look forward to coming back and being a part of my second church family, and I love being here. And whether you are in person at one of our campuses at Greenwood or Franklin or Garfield Park or Banta, or you're joining us online, here's one thing that I want you to hear from me today, is that I firmly believe if you can hear my voice, it's not an accident. That you didn't, weren't just driving down the street or surfing the internet and all of a sudden landed on the website or, or got directed into a campus by accident. That you are here for a reason. You may not know what that reason is. Maybe it's because your mom dragged you to church or maybe you're an adult and your mom guilted you into coming to church. But you're at church either way. And I believe that the reason is because God has a message for you. So I want to start off with three really quick stories. The date was September 11th, 2001. Flight 93 was leaving Newark, New Jersey and flying to San Francisco, California when a terrorist hijackers hijacked the plane, stormed the cockpit, took it over, and their goal was to turn it around and crash it either into the Capitol or the White House, causing loss of life to hundreds if not thousands of people. Well, some of the passengers heard about the plan and led by a young man by the name of Todd Beamer decided not on their watch, that they were willing to do whatever it took to thwart the plans of the terrorists and they crashed the plane successfully, or they, not successfully, they crashed the plane, losing their own life and everybody on board, but saving the lives of thousands. And I always wondered to myself, what would, what would it take for me to do that? Because the last words that were heard by Todd Beamer over the phone was he said, is everybody ready? Let's roll. And they went. The second story is about a young girl named Malayla Yufoski, and she was a teenager in Pakistan. In her part of Pakistan, it was against the law for young ladies to be educated, to learn how to read and to write. And she believed in her heart that this was just wrong because everybody, whether they're male or female, should have the right to be educated. And so on her own as a teenager, she started educating her family and her friends and teaching them how to read and how to write. Well, it wasn't long before uh, the news got out. And one day she was riding a bus to a group where she was going to teach some young ladies how to read and write. And the Taliban got on the bus and they attempted to assassinate her by shooting her in the head and they left her for dead. She didn't die. In fact, when she recovered, she became a model for their nation and she became not known just in Pakistan, but around the world. And now as a 24-year-old, 24-year-old young lady, she is starting schools throughout her region of Pakistan where young ladies can learn to read and write. Amazing stories. 1989, Beijing, China. There was a group of thousands of, of university students that gathered together in a place called Tiananmen Square to protest peacefully the human uh, rights violations and the atrocities that the Chinese government was, was, was uh, doing to people. 
The Chinese government didn't like this, so they sent in their army, and as the, as the news report said, they vigorously uh, attacked and massacred several of these students. And, and uh, what was interesting was, is as this is going on, all of a sudden down one of the main streets, about 20 Chinese tanks started rolling right down the middle of the street. And it, without anybody's warning or notice, a young man dressed in a white shirt, black pants, and holding two shopping bags stepped out into the middle of the street in front of 20 Chinese army tanks. And when they tried to go to the left, he would go to the left. When they tried to go to the right, he would go to the right. And he stopped them from doing it. In fact, this picture became the picture of the year for 1989. And then he disappeared in the crowd, and nobody knows who he was. The thing that impacts me or the question that it causes me to ask is this. How did each one of these people step out from behind the curtain? Nobody knew who they were, and they were able to change the course of history. How were they able to do that? How were they had to go from unknown to world-renowned? How does that happen? What takes place? Well, today, we're going to take a look at a story, a true story, from the Bible, where one man does that. If you have your Bibles or your, or your devices, turn to the book of Esther, and uh, we're going to follow along there. And our main hero is a guy by the name of Mordecai. Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background about what was going on at the time. God's chosen people were the children of, of Israel, the Jewish nation. And so he said that, hey, I'm going to take care of you. And they followed God really well for a time. And then they kind of forgot, got bored, got distracted, and, and kind of fell away from God. And then bad stuff started to happen, and when bad things happened, they said, hey, God, please help me. And God was like, okay, and God would charge, charge in, and he would rescue them once again. And then they would be close to God, and then they would forget about God. It was a cycle that continues. <laughs> Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? For us, yeah, it sure does. Well, what happened was at one point, they had fallen away from God, and God allowed um, the uh, Babylonian uh, empire to come in and conquer them. Nebuchadnezzar took them over, and, and what was the, the, the thing of the day is that when you conquered a nation, you didn't just enslave them or imprison people, you would literally um, disperse them. And so they would take everybody, and they would move them all across the empire, and they would move them and just uh, eliminate their culture, basically. Also, it provided a great free uh, workforce for whatever projects you had going on. Well, it wasn't long until the Persian Empire came in and conquered the Babylonians, and it was larger. The Persian Empire went all the way from northern Africa all the way way into India. It was the largest kingdom, the largest empire in the world, in the history of the world, up until that point. Well, here we join our hero Mordecai because Mordecai was deported from his hometown to the capital of the Persian Empire called Susa. And along with him, he was able to bring along his adopted daughter, whose name was Esther. Well, as they were there, he was working at one of the gates. His assignment was to work as a gate as people going to the city. Um, Esther uh, was chosen to be in the first ever episode of The Bachelorette. Now, it wasn't like this short version that's on TV. It was actually a two-year uh, two version um, that she was in, and she ended up winning and becoming the queen for King Xerxes. So she lived in the palace, and her, her adopted dad uh, worked at a gate and would go back and forth every day and talk to her. They had a very tight relationship. 
Well, uh, through a, a long series of events, the king Xerxes was actually tricked into making a law in which he was told that there was a group of people in the kingdom that were really bad, and it'd be great if we got rid of them. And the way that we should do that is we should have a day that we'll call the purge day, okay? Where you could go after all of this group of people. In fact, let's put up a bounty, and the bounty in today's money is about $320 million. That if you went out and, and, and took out all these people, you would get paid money. Seemed like a, a pretty nasty way to make money, but hey, people were like that back then. And so it turned out that the group of people that they were trying to get rid of was none other than children of Israel, the Jewish nation. And so when Mordecai hears about this, he knows that him and all of his countrymen spread from Africa to India, the hundreds of thousands of people, they are going to be um, up for execution on that day. And he knows within his heart he has to do something. So he goes to his adopted daughter, Esther in the palace, and he says to her, we've got to do something, and I think it's you. And I love what it says in Esther chapter four, because here's what it says. He says to her, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows, but perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Mordecai knew that this was the epic, the pivotal, the milestone moment in life, and he was encouraging his daughter to speak to the king. There was one problem, though, is that you were not allowed to talk directly to the king when he was in the throne room unless you were invited. Her only chance was to walk in and he would extend his scepter and then accept her and listen to her request. And so she went into the room knowing that if he was in a bad mood, this could be her last day. But knowing if she didn't go into the room, it would be the last day. And so she walked in, he extended the scepter, and he asked what she wanted. And over the course of the next few days, she gave her request. They made another law that uh, trumped the first law and uh, saved the Jewish nation. And so I had to ask myself, why would Mordecai do this? Well, part of it was self-preservation. He didn't want to die. Part of it was love for his family, and part of it was love for his countrymen. But what caused him at this moment to act in this way? And what I came up with is that Mordecai was a man of conviction. Now, before we go any further, I want us to kind of define what conviction is. So conviction is being utterly convinced and confident in what you believe. Being utterly convinced and confident in what you believe. It doesn't mean you sort of think about it. It doesn't mean that it might be something you believe in. Like, hey, if you're having a good day, we'll do it this way. This is stuff that in your heart, it beats. It keeps you up at night. It's a thing that you wake up first thing in the morning. It's when you hear about it, it makes you mad and angry because something has happened and it goes against your conviction, something that you, that you utterly are convinced in and you're confident. And the second piece that Mordecai had was courage. And courage is just being willing to act on your convictions. So being willing to act on your convictions. But here's the thing. This wasn't a one-time moment. Mordecai didn't just all of a sudden go, hey, uh, everybody's going to die. Okay, I'll step up. No, we can take a look that Mordecai had some bold moves throughout his life that revealed his convictions. 
So let's take a look at just three of the convictions that we can see in his life. The first conviction that we have, the first thing that we know is that family matters. Family matters. As we read in the book of Esther, it says this. It says that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah who had no father or mother. So Mordecai took care of her. Hadassah was also known as Esther. Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. We don't have any details about how Esther's mom and dad died. Maybe they died of illness. Maybe they died of something else. Maybe they died uh, when they were being dispersed. We don't know. But for whatever reason, Esther was a young girl who was an orphan. And so Mordecai said family matters. Interesting thing about this is, is that we know nothing about Mordecai's family. Was he married? Did he have kids of his own? Did he adopt her? Was he a single dad? We don't know. But what we do know is that for Mordecai, one of his convictions was family matters. We take care of our family. And that was, a, that was one of his convictions. The second conviction that we have is that life matters. That life matters. You know, remember I told you that uh, Mordecai's job was he was the, worked at the gate that entered into the city? Well, in the book of Esther, here's how it describes something that happened. It says, one day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, the king's gate was where all the royalty and the gate that the king went in and out of, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Thana and Teresh, these guys sound like a WWE tag team, don't they? Big Thana and Teresh, right? They, they became angry at King Xerxes. I wonder if it was because they were made eunuchs, okay? If you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your mom, okay? Uh, But they became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to his daughter, Queen Esther, and she told the king, and that thwarted the assassination thing, and they ended up uh, not happening. Now, you know, when you think about this as a guy who works for the king and he hears about an assassination plot, and then he, he, uh, he tells the king to save his life. You know, it's kind of like uh, an employee taking care of the boss, right? And that sounds really good, except that's not the case here. Did Mordecai work for Xerxes? Yeah, but not by his choice. He had been moved from his city to the city of Susa. He didn't want to be there. Uh, Xerxes was not his boss. Mordecai, or Xerxes was his captor. Oh man, that's hard. Because I want to protect the lives of the people that I like. But if there's somebody that I don't like, you're like, eh, life happens, right? But that was not Mordecai because Mordecai's conviction was life matters. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what position you're in, it doesn't matter what relationship we have. But life matters. That was his core conviction. And the third picture, the the third snapshot that we have is Mordecai's third conviction was God matters. You see, here we enter the villain in our story, and the villain's name is Haman. Haman was number two in the empire. He was kind of like vice king, but really in his mind, he was really the king. The other guy was a figurehead, and he ran it all. This guy was prideful. This guy was arrogant. This guy was out of control. And so he would uh, make people do things that just had to drive people crazy. In fact, when we read in in the book of Esther, it says this. It says, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. So imagine Haman riding in on his horse and everybody kneeling down. 
for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Well, why wouldn't Mordecai kneel down? Mordecai was raised a young Jewish boy. One of the things that, that Jewish children did was that they had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, there's a list of ten commandments. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, aren't we? But the interesting thing is, is that one of them says, you will have no other gods before me, and it goes on to say that you will not bow the knee to anyone else. So Mordecai's core value was, I only worship God, I do not worship man. And I don't care what the law is, I don't care what the rule is, God comes first. And so he didn't. Well, this severely ticked off Haman. In fact, Haman, it says that he could not sleep at night, and he complained to his wife about Mordecai that wouldn't bow down, and why doesn't he know who I am, and shouldn't he be, be taking care of me? And then he found out that Mordecai was Jewish, and his anger burst into flame. He's the one that went to the king's Xerxes and says, hey, there's a group of people in the kingdom that are working against you, and we need to eliminate them. It wasn't true. It wasn't that they actually were good workers in the kingdom. But Haman's hatred for Mordecai and all the Jewish people had inflamed to a place where he made this rule. Now, I'm going to tell you that I'm only hitting the highlights of the book of Esther. If you have 20 to 30 minutes, I want you to read the book of Esther. It is bigger than any summer blockbuster movie you have ever seen. It's filled with, with revenge and irony and plot twists and all kinds of things that go on. It's an amazing story to read. Um, but it's a great story story. But here's where I want to hit just pause for just a second. Because you didn't come to church. You didn't log online just to hear a good story. I mean, you go, hey, Michael, good job. You told it well. Mordecai's a man, man of conviction. I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. So what? So what? What does this mean for me? I mean, it's great that a guy that lived thousands of years had these really strong convictions and saved his people and, and blah, blah, blah. But what does it mean for me today? I think it means two very simple things. The first thing is this. You have to know your convictions. You have to know your convictions. I don't care if you're a middle schooler or if you're a senior adult or anywhere in between. You have to know your convictions. What are those things that make your heart beat fast? What are those things that you say, no way, no how, on my watch, am I going to allow this to happen? I'm going to take a stand. And the second thing you have to do is you have to be willing to act courageously. You have to be willing to act courageously. This past week, I did a funeral for a young man in our church that was in high school, and he died suddenly. And I mean, it was, it was one of those horrible funerals that, that nobody wants to be a part of. But as we are at the visitation, two of his buddies from high school came up, and they said to me, they said, he was our best friend. And so I said, well, how did you guys first meet? And one of the guys goes, I can tell you. He goes, I was sitting at the lunch table in middle school. And he comes over and says, uh, hey, can I sit with you? And I really didn't want to sit with anybody because I was having a rotten day. And I said, I'm going to sit by myself. And he goes, oh, I got this thing. Nobody eats alone. 
And he's like, well, if it's a thing, I guess you have to eat with me. And he said, so they sat there and they started talking. And then the next day, the next day, they looked and there was another young man, the other guy standing there, at another table. And he goes, okay, nobody eats alone. Let's go. And so his conviction became that nobody eats alone. You see, whether you're young or old or anywhere in between, you have to have convictions. I talked with a dad named Greg, and Greg played minor league baseball, and he dreamed of a day that maybe God would give him a wife and some sons that would play baseball. God, God gave him that. And he had his, one of his sons is a really good baseball player. And so, man, they are playing baseball all the time. They're on travel ball teams. They're going everywhere. But there's something that's happening with Greg is that God is working on his heart, his men's group, and he's coming under the conviction that God should be number one in his life. And so he met with me, and he said, Michael, i got a problem. He goes, I've dreamed of the day that my boy will play baseball, just like I did. But I think God is bigger than baseball. And he wrote down on a napkin, and he said, God, and the greater than sign, baseball. And he slides it over to me, and he goes, how do I make that work? Man. I said, you know what, Greg? you got to figure that out. All right, I had no advice for him. But the truth is, we all have convictions and we have to figure out what is. You may be thinking, I don't have a conviction. If you're a parent and you can hear my voice, you have convictions. I want you to imagine you're driving your minivan, okay? And next to you is your spouse or uh, one, of your, uh, one of your kids, okay? And you're talking to them and you're having this conversation that you never, ever get to have with them. And so you're really into it. All of a sudden, you see something out of the corner of your eye and you realize the semi-truck in front of you is stopped and you slam on the brakes as fast as you can to stop. And what happens to your right hand, right? Just automatically it goes, choing, parent seatbelt, right? Because in the event that you smash into this truck at 60 miles an hour, your arm is going to be able to save your child without injury, right? I mean, I don't know if you've seen my arm. Yeah, that ain't going to happen, okay? But in our minds, in our minds, we have this value that our kids matter, our loved ones matter. So as we're stopping on the brake and going, no, safe right? It happens. We all have convictions. Last night when I was preaching, I was standing uh, over here at the, at, and looking out the window, and there was a, uh, a lady get out of her car, and she parked kind of far back in the parking lot. She looked to me like a single mom, because she had one kid that she was here, and she had a diaper bag on this one, and she was carrying another kid on her thing, and she made her way all the way across the parking lot, and, and then she walked all the way across the lobby, I didn't know anything about her. I didn't go up and meet her. But I could only imagine that uh, her life was pretty easy. Saturday at 4 o'clock, I imagined that after working two jobs all week to take care of her kids and keep them in daycare, she would much rather take a nap than bring them to church. But that's a hero mom that says, my conviction is we put God first. And we're going to get God in church. And we're, I mean, we're going to get our kids in church. And I'm going to be in church so we can learn about God. You see, we all have these convictions that, that are in our life, but the question is, are we going to be willing to act courageously? Because i got to be honest with you. If you're following Jesus, we need to act on our convictions. If we have convictions and we don't act on them, that's not good. In fact, the Bible says in James chapter 2, it says this, faith alone without works is dead. If you say you believe something, but you do the exact opposite, your convictions are worthless. Your faith is dead. In fact, people who don't follow Jesus, they call that hypocrisy. To say one thing 
but to do another. You see, God calls us not just to know what our convictions are. God calls us to act courageously. But the problem is, I think, that we are waiting for that big moment. We're waiting for that big moment when, uh, when we can step in front of the king and go, save my people, or we can, we can uh, save the plane, or we can, whatever we can do. More often than not, God calls us in little things every day. Dad, how are you going to act on your convictions at work? Because your kids are watching. Moms, how are you going to love your kids? Because they know. Students, your friends know that you go to church. How do you act? How are you different? We have to know what our core convictions are. And we have to be willing to act on our convictions. It's really important. Whether it's in a big way, but more often than not, it's in a small way. I want to tell you a story of one of my heroes. His name is William Tyndale, and he lived 500 years ago in England. In England at that time, there was a law made by the king that uh, the Bible could not be translated into English. It was in Latin. And the prevailing belief was that people weren't smart enough to understand the Bible. Well, i got to be honest with you, it was written in Latin. I couldn't understand it either, okay? But William Tyndale was convinced that God's word should be for everybody. And so secretly, he began translating the entire Bible into English. And then he would distribute them to some of his friends at different churches. And they began teaching so that people could know the truth of God's love. He didn't believe that, that you had to go to church is the only place you could learn about God. He believed that people could learn about God on their own. Well, it didn't take long for the king to hear about it, and they had William Tyndale arrested, and he was put in prison. And for the next 500 days, over a year and a half, every day he was asked, will you stop translating the Bible? He was quoted as saying, it's my life's mission that a young man plowing in the field can know as much about God from the Bible as the Pope does. And every day for 500 days, they asked him on the 500th day, they said, that's it. And so they're going to execute him. They tied him to a stake. They killed him by strangulation. And then they burned his body because he believed the Bible should be for everybody. I can only imagine what he would think of today when all of us can pull our devices out and have a Bible app. I'll bet he would be so excited. In his dying breath, he was asked if he wanted to say anything. He says, my only prayer is that one day the king will change his heart about this, right before he died. Now, my question that I had to ask is, what is in the Bible? What is in the Bible that William Tyndale thought was so important? What was in here that it was worth hiding? I mean, can you imagine translating every single word into another language and then secretly giving it away. What is so important in here that it was worth risking his life? What is so important in this Bible that every day for 500 days, he had to say, I believe the Bible is for everybody. What is so important in the Bible that he was willing to give his life? I think it boils down to what we call the good news. And the simplest verse for that is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him 
will not perish. And here's the good news, but have eternal life. Man, that's a conviction worth giving your life for, isn't it? And my prayer is that if you can hear my voice today, that you have that as one of your convictions, that God loves me and gave his son, Jesus. If you're here today and you can hear my voice and that's new to you, the only thing I can say is it's true. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And heaven is waiting for you. Man, that's good news. So I want to take an opportunity right now that if today is your day where you want to act courageously on the conviction that God loves you, then I'm going to say a prayer and I want to ask you to pray that with me and just accept him. And if you're here today and you've already made that commitment, let this be a, a, a redo. Let this be a rededication. Let this be a time where you can say, God, 100%, I'm all in. I want to know my convictions and I want to live courageously. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you that even though we make mistakes and we don't deserve your love, that you love us. God, I thank you for people like William Tyndale who gave their life so that I can read the Bible in my own language because it is filled with your good news. God, I am sorry for the times that I have failed you and I've sinned. And right now, in this moment, I want to act on my conviction and accept you as my Lord and Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's celebrate all those who made that decision, church family. Let's celebrate. And if you made that decision, you're one of our campuses or you're online, I want to encourage you to text the number, text SAVED 65248. If you're at one of our in-person campuses, you can just go straight to the information center and they will give you this box. If you're online, just fill out the form and it'll be mailed to you. And we are super excited uh, for all those decisions. But here's what I wanna say, if today was not your day, if you've already made that decision, let's live out our convictions. Right now we wanna turn it over to our local teams.